Get in bed with the enemy. <laughs> really make love with the thing that you think you don't love. And um, because I think it can fulfill personally, like, I'm only going to do this, this, and only pursue this, this, and this, and this. Right. And yet there's so much valuable information in checking out the thing that's the antimatter. Hello, everyone. Thank you for tuning in to Table Work, How New Plays Get Made. My name is Amber Bradshaw, and I am a new play dramaturg, arts administrator, and educator. And in the context of this particular episode, I am also a dancer. On this podcast, I ask some primary questions. What is new play dramaturgy and how do we do it? What do creating artists want to see in the future? Where are we failing in the creative process and how can we solve these concerns? The mission is to demystify the process of creation and collaboration, explore ways to better our field, share tools to diversify and improve the work and record what we discover. This podcast is brought to you by Working Title Playwrights, a new play incubator and service organization based in Atlanta, Georgia, in which I serve as the managing artistic director. For more about WTP and me, check out www.workingtitleplaywrights.com. I'd like to start today by introducing y'all to our guest, George Stave. Welcome, George. Thank you, Amber. What a joy. So George was born in Tehran, Iran. George is of Armenian descent and has been living in the United States since the age of 10. In 2001, George joined the dance faculty at Emory University, where he teaches a seminar created to examine the impetus and practice of consuming and making art. Since relocating to Atlanta, Georgia, Stabe's work and teaching have been commissioned across the United States, resulting in his recognition by Dance Teacher Magazine in 2014 as one of the top five dance educators in the country. Of Stabe Dance's many projects, they curated and produced the first ever Atlanta Multicultural Dance Festival. They also created a summer intensive in Sorrento, Italy, that is now in its 11th year. And they also host a 10-part podcast series titled Secret Architecture, The Process of Process. And I also have attended a few different workshops where Stave Dance invited audiences to come and watch rehearsals, which was really, really cool. And very, very scary. <laughs> I do remember you saying you were nervous. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I think uh, we met uh, very early on when I was working with Gathering Wild Dance um, and, and the show Circa 50 that I designed and developed and, and worked with Geraldine Warner very closely on. Um, but we also um, reconnected as members of the 2020 class of, of the arts leaders of Metro Atlanta. Um, we sat together at one of the monthly sessions and really hit it off. And we also got to connect at one of Stave Dance's incredible workshops recently and have planned some exciting collaborations. I'm going to be <laughs> off the charts. It's going to be nuts. Yeah, I know. Yeah. And of course, I'm a big fan of Stave Dance and have seen several shows, including your most recent project, Ararat. Thank you, Amber. To be seen feels really great. And also to be seen by somebody who I respect, who is so multifaceted and really dedicated to lifting up, really dedicated to kind of breaking down barriers of cultural access, it means a lot. So thank you. So tell us about Stave Dance. Well, um, 
maybe the idea for this came when I was an undergrad and one of my dance teachers had her own dance company and was teaching dance. And that was my first interaction with movement. And I remember thinking, I'm just like you when I grow up. And then the position at Emory opened and I joined the faculty in 2001. But I knew pretty early on that having some creative outlet would have been really the only way to sustain a career in academia, because in our field, it's called research. And um, I did understand, likewise, that one thing feeding the other would be incredibly valuable, i.e. teaching at Emory could somehow fuel the work of the company. Likewise, company work could fuel uh, teaching in a studio at Emory. But since then, not but, and since then, um, I recognize that the company is really not that different than I am. It's really invested in reinvention um, and kind of looking at something new and glittery and massaging it for a while and seeing how <laughs> far it takes us. And then also it's steeped in listening. Um, and COVID, regardless of uh, how that's situated with different lives, was a great pause for us to look back and say, hey, this is an opportunity to not rebrand, but to finally dive into some things that have been on the back burner and bring forward. So it is culturally rooted because of me. It can't not be that, but also serves to lift up other cultures in the city as well as um, you know, drive forward maybe this wackadoo sense of contemporary dance and because it's undefinable. And so we just contribute one of the little definitions. That's great. And I, I also love this idea of, of how your um, work at Emory and your work with Dave Dance collides and, and how they support one another. I always think, you know, if for some reason, educator and education can feel like a bad word, but yeah. I always, I feel constantly, if I'm not learning, I'm bored out of my mind. Yeah, absolutely. And so much of the process work we do is education and educating and training one another as collaborators. Don't you find? Uh, I hit the nail on the head simply because I remember a long time ago, I heard this horrible phrase, those who can do, those who can't teach. Oh. Like, fuck that. Can I oh, say that word? Yes, you can. Okay. And Be, fuck that. Yeah. <laughs> simply because those <laughs> two things can merge. And the thing that I noticed, whether in other institutions, not higher ed, but in studios, or there's this teaching from nostalgia. Well, this is the way it's always been mm. done. And therefore, I'm, I, I need to be a steward of that and push it forward. And I see that my interest is not really invested in that, although I do cling to the past a lot. I'm a worrier and a like, panicker of the past <laughs> and the future. And at the same time, newness is so intriguing to me and scary, mm -hmm. which means I should probably run to it. <laughs> I do think that in an yes. academic setting, especially at a research institution like Emory, where research is important, I find I'm less interested in researching the past and more interested in researching the current moment mm -hmm. or the past and how it relates to the current moment and people. I'm fascinated mm -hmm. by people. I so resonate with that, George. You do? Like, I'm like, I don't need to be rude, but I'm really just interested in really? right now. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, we can dissect and dissect and... We can learn from the past. We can t we can do so much studying, and but... Can I mm. just add, I, maybe this was a conversation we had last week, um, was that our association with the past, or mine anyway, depends on what mood I'm in. If I'm in a really oh, grouchy is. mood and I'll think back onto an event and think, well, that was horrible. 
Mm-hmm. Or if I'm in a festive mood, I'm like, oh, yeah, that was silly, whatever. Mm-hmm. And so I can't even recount history properly in my own mind. Absolutely not. We don't remember that stuff <laughs> no. the way it happened at <laughs> so, all. Like a book about 1843. I don't know how much I should trust that. Oh, I completely agree. So, I completely agree, especially if you know um, artists who create the same story over and over again. Yeah. Oh. But like in a hundred different iterations. It's, How many of those do you know? I know quite a few. I, I, it's like the same story. It's just being told from all these different perspectives and life experiences. That is completely it. And whether it's uh, self-awareness that brings him to that or consciousness, exactly. I'm still fascinated in many exactly. ways. Yeah. That never bores me. Absolutely. I do think, and, and I, in the podcast, I've talked a lot about this idea of maintaining the ecstasy of being an artist, despite the scarcity we live under. And I think this is also so important is what is now and what is coming and how are we a part of what's next? Yes. Right. And how exciting and electric that is and as an artist to be a part of that, you know, but you have to have your finger on the pulse and you have to be willing to let go of what you used to believe. And that can be really hard, right? It's, it's, again, I'll use this word quite a bit. It's frightening, but that's the only way to encounter new territory. And then the hope is that whoever might choose to join you uh, as an audience member or supporter or feedback giver is open to that electricity as well. Mm. You know, it's either you really look at a beautiful menu at a restaurant or you look at the laminated page and just... Uh, if that makes sense, you know, yes. you're just choosing to engage a little bit differently and ask a question uh, rather than only embrace the familiar. Mm-hmm. And that's scary. Because yeah. I don't know what people want. And I think that governs sometimes production and output. Mm. Trying to guess what people might want and what a futile attempt at anything. And, oh my gosh, yeah. right. And how often are we wrong? Almost always. Well, that's great. And so how has this exploration taken you through the journey with Stave Dance, you know, um, in terms of like kind of how you were mission driven at the beginning and where you found yourself now? Well, as you say that immediately, I'm thinking about the trajectory. Let's say 2007. That's when we say we began, but it's really fuzzy. And I've recognized that even the dancers who engage with us um, are either compelled by something recent that we did and want to become part of it or fall away because of something that we did because they (laughs) don't want to be part of it. And um, that was a tough thing to navigate at first when there were dancers who I really respected and loved. They're like, "Uh, you know, I'm not so much into this kind of work anymore or, you know, whatever personal reasons. And, once I shook hands with that and recognized like, oh, it's okay. It is a mirror for the way we live our lives. I mean, I'm still not best friends with people from elementary school. I don't even know if I would know anybody. And I think it's an evolution and I had to reconcile that. So mm-hmm. stay dance as a vehicle for that kind of exploration artistically mm-hmm. is really rooted in a mutual trust among the collaborators and the dancers and inside the space. And, even as you had mentioned, Ararat is preparing, it was preparing to be presented. Um, in my panic moments, a dancer said, George, there's a lot of brilliance around you right now. It's going to be fine. And mm-hmm. it's like, you know, you're right. The composer is amazing. The lighting di- designer and scenic designer is incredible. 
the dancers are phenomenal. So mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. if the sh- ship sinks, we'll all go down together. But there's <laughs> something, there are plenty of life preservers out there, I think. Yes, yeah. yes, absolutely. Um, and also, I mean, I've seen uh, an evolution for you in leadership in your organization. I mean, you've given some of your dancers a lot of opportunity to step up. Um, and that has been very satisfying. And sometimes maybe that was a way back in the day, 10 or 15 years ago, a point of qualification. I would think like, oh, no one could ever like what I'm doing, but they might like what that person's doing. So I'll latch on to it. Mm-hmm. Yet there's been a really beautiful merging of artistic ideas and so forth that have come forward. Things that are more firmly rooted in the practitioner, whether it's like um, Amelia Reiser, Anna Bracewell Crowder, um, people who I often go to to teach um, other dancers in the company. There's an ownership there that I don't wish to claim, but I know is fruitful. It's beautiful. It's evocative. And I wouldn't dare take it out of their hands. I might steal mm. an idea sometimes, <laughs> but uh, if the horse's mouth is there, I prefer it to become mm. this information or the collaboration company. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, and I also hear you saying it's like, even if you come up with some of the the choreography, which I know you work in collaboration with your dancers and choreography, but even things that you might be deciding on, you know that choreography is going to work itself out individually through each body, each dancer, right? And it's never going to look exactly as you performed it for them or as you showed them, right? That is so true. And this would be a great conversation in terms of playwrights and people who put text to the page because it's Mm. going to have a resonance in your head. And then when you hear somebody else speak it, you're like, "Mm, I like that. I like this. (laughs) And that was, um, or do the move like this or do it like that. And then after a while, I thought, well, I don't need other people to look like me. In fact, it's better if they don't look like me on stage Mm because many reasons. And coming from a a background where uh, meticulous unison was such an integral part of what we did, marching band, color guard, and all the stuff everyone had to look alike. there was some gratification in achieving that, but then I realized, hmm, we've proven we can do that. But mm-hmm. how does this seed grow, whether it's movement or text inside somebody else's body? So mm-hmm. the thing we think about, the molecules are effectively the same. How the physical being reacts to it or the output is going to be different. And we welcome that inside mm-hmm. the studio and inside the work. I love that. Yeah. And, and that shows in the work, right? It just, it feels so much that each dancer gets to have full agency over their movement. Yes. Um, right. And I, I just don't see like a, you know, a, a hand over them. Right? Yeah, it's, no. it's more about the message of the piece that the choreography is telling rather than like exactness, yeah. which the exactness is the dancers understanding the mission of the piece, right? Rather yeah. than the exact movement. Exactly. It's almost like traffic. We're all going in the same direction. (laughs) Essentially, there's so much differentness going on in each car, but we're all going there. Mm -hmm. And maybe that's the cool part of it. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's what I love seeing. So it's why auditions are a bitch. I can't stand them. I don't do them anymore. Or 
uh, we talked about perhaps over rehearsing and is that possible? And I kind of think it is possible. I agree. You do too? Playwrights I mean, I feel think this in, as well? I think in theater, there's almost never too much time because it's such a scarcity model. But I I do think sometimes things can become too polished. Uh-huh. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And so we've adopted this thing where I tell them, you can't mess this up. If you are listening to yourself and to mm-hmm. the environment and you're attenuated to this world that we've constructed, you really can't mess up something. Therefore... Mm-hmm live in this and react accordingly and mm-hmm. um and and again i have to make sure that i'm not checking myself that's not the easy way out or being lazy but on the other hand it does put more vitality you had mentioned at the start of this conversation the electricity of it mm-hmm. yeah. yeah definitely yeah i mean even in the um you know a lot of dancers aren't trained to use facial expressions at all oh, right yeah and I'm, I'm sure that's less now than it used to be, but I still see that a lot with dancers. And I feel like your dancers have a lot of facial expressions. Like there, there's a lot going on on their faces. And yeah. I'm, I'm appreciative of that because the, the dancer's body isn't the only thing telling the story. I mean, the face is, is very key as well. And I've always sort of wanted more mm-hmm. of that from dancers, probably just because I'm a theater artist, you know, and yeah. I'm looking for that connection. But I th- also... Uh, and I believe if it works, and it sounds like it does for you, it's because it starts internally. Mm-hmm. I use the analogy of a soap opera actress or actor where the drama starts in the face and then it goes in the body, which feels very canned or cartoony. <laughs> yes. And you'll hear, whether it's on a dance mom, being like, now where are your facials? Do the facials correctly. And I thought, well, <laughs> why is the facial expression the, the decoration? Isn't the facial decoration? Yeah. <laughs> so, I don't watch those shows. I didn't know. <laughs> I never watch them. I only see a clip here and there. But I always think that should be the last thing that comes out because whether it's anxiety or anger or fear, I always feel it in the body first, then on my face. Mm-hmm. Um, and if I, I register on my face, it's because it's already started somewhere else. So it's not something, well, so I'm glad because if you see a dancer like struggling, like, oh, I gotta jump to the floor one more time, and that grit is in the fatigue, it's real. And, yes. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Love that. So let's talk about Ararat. You just had a preview of the show at Emory in January, which was really a first look. And, um, and I got to see a little bit of the the sort of foundations of that show because I attended a workshop That's that right. you did um, right beforehand. Um, it was about a six hour workshop, and a lot of it was led by your lead dancers, Anna, yes, um, Anna being one of them. Um, and please, I know I'm gonna re- not remember all of their names, okay. but wow, um, they were incredible. And and actually, I I actually remember them leading most of the workshop, and you were really a support a support leader there, which was really cool um, because you're always very present to introduce the shows, you know, to talk about rehearsals, but I really felt like you, you really sat down and you let them, you let them take care of it. And it was really nice to see. Well, I'm glad that was appreciated because I appreciate their willingness to do that. The generosity in that it's a lot of intellectual labor, Mm -hmm. physical labor, and it's essentially a manifestation of their own research that yeah. they've done outside. And just, uh, um, I think it's really marvelous. Now the organization almost feels like a collective of different ideas and bodies and experiences in the room. Whereas I think 
dance in the 80s and 90s when I was aspiring to be in a company really did have this sort of thing. You had either had to have the look, the aesthetic inclination, or the drive to do the same thing that that company is doing. And so if the doors feel open, that's really wonderful. <laughs> and inside the workshop, admittedly, some of the prompts, um, I think they would, I would call them 50-50. Some of the prompts were things that Anna experienced on her own or things that I would drop into the space. Yeah. And um, there's infinite amount of trust inside of that. Mm -hmm. and, um, and I just take a lot of pleasure out of watching as well. And, mm -hmm. and yeah. I wonder about you, as a, there's a letting go of control, which I've noticed personally, and I'm so gleefully <laughs> inclined to do that now. Yes. Whereas I remember a piece I did maybe, let's say 2008 or nine, called mm -hmm. Gargoyles. It was a 30 minute piece, so I'll just borrow music. Remember, every second was counted. Every hand was placed in a thing. And there, so that kind of neuroses governed the making <laughs> of the stuff. And now like, oh, well, that's cool. Like, yeah, maybe do that tomorrow night's performance. And tonight's performance, try this. And mm -hmm. so I think the same thing occurs in our workshops. We'll just look to see what what's happening among the five mm -hmm. in the room. And uh, like if you, you might be doing something like, oh, let's play around with that idea and see where yeah. it goes. Yeah. Absolutely. Watching your work with Save Dance has been just like you have you have really listened to your community and you have welcomed you have welcomed these dancers into your leadership circle in ways that a lot of leaders I have not seen do. Right. And I want all leaders to do this. I want everybody to be like, you're really smart and you really have something you can contribute to the work that I'm doing. And you have been a trusted and honored collaborator. How can I give you more space? How can I give you more of a voice, you know? Um, and so I, I just love that about hearing you talk about it because I also think you're coming from an educator place of like, if you are always, what I learned from becoming a teacher more recently, the last three years teaching dramaturgs right. is that it's all learning. Yeah. I didn't know teaching was all learning. I had no clue. I think, well, if you're seeing that, I think that's magnificent. And if I'm doing that, that's great. And I'll <laughs> say on your podcast, this is a resolution to really jump into it even more. So thank you for that. And, um, and I also feel as though it's a, a life lesson as well, because I might assume that I have finite interests, um, <laughs> but they're really... Um, Just as soon as we think that, yeah, yeah, something surprising yeah, pops up. Exactly. And I think maybe if there's a stem or a root of that, it could be that as well because yeah. even my executive director would be like mm -hmm, George don't always have to chase all the shiny face so in terms of Ararat tell me a little bit about where this show began for you and where it has moved to well in some funding circles as I'm sure your listeners might know <laughs> uh, you have to know a thing well before you even hit the studio or put paper to pen or make a move, right? So as Fence was wrapping up, we were thinking about the, I was thinking about like, what next? And it had just been, we were right before the, the shutdown. And I started thinking even prior to the shutdown about this idea of newness and kind of resurrecting the self or um, the idea of a friend handed to me was the idea of remnants. And so relating to 
my people, Armenian people being all over the world and that diaspora. And it's not, uh, if you ask a native Armenian uh, who's in Yerevan right now, they're like, oh, we love new things. We love all of this stuff. Nobody wants to stay put. And I thought, well, you know, I think that speaks very well to our culture. And um, it was also at a time where the idea of resilience wasn't being spoken of so much. Mm. And yet I saw resilience all around me in many sort of mm. demographics and economic situations. And um, there's still a lot of sadness and burden and heaviness inside of that. And that on a parallel track, I think, well, we're still here. So the COVID shutdown, it's not a COVID dance by any means, but it's a reflection on, it just so happened to coincide with the fact that mythologically Noah's Ark resides at the top of Mount Ararat. So, uh, and it's a mountain in Turkey, and this mountain serves as a source of inspiration and hope for the Armenians. So if we think, okay, if you believe in the Great Flood, that was a giant shutdown, and everything started afresh. And after the Armenian Genocide, 1912 through 1914, many Armenians fled, and that's also a new beginning inside different territories, whether it was in Jerusalem or in Iran, which is where my family ended up. California, <laughs> Lebanon, Greece, and so on. So there's prosperity in this relocation, yet at the same time, a holding to some sort of, you know, that thing everyone's talking about, mushrooms communicating under the ground and trees communicating under the ground. So there's that thing connecting Armenians under the ground, whether it's language or music or food. And mm. I, I'm, I, I can't get into things, but it's this connectivity that resides inside of this. And so, Ararat is that, new beginnings, and without understanding where it's going to go. So intentionally, this work has no logical resolution. And in fact, inside several moments, um, things begin over and over and over with different opening lines. So that's the idea. And um, Dialing behind that, the scariest moment, which I've expressed to you, is the first five minutes where quite literally nothing happens. <laughs> so, except for every minute on the minute, somebody sits up or somebody stands up. And that is frightening and in many ways alludes to the fact when all things are possible, what do you do? Which direction do you swim in? And I find personally that thought is liberating and also suffocating at the same time. Here, you can do whatever you want. Great. Uh, now what? I, I need a nudge some way in one direction. And so that this work tackles that. And to me, that that's the theater of the work. Mm -hmm is the 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 five minutes of watching oh, really? them jump up. Like <laughs> that there's so much theater to that because it's like, what the hell is going on right now? Yeah. And you're just like on the edge of your seat, just waiting. Scary. So, oh, I know. We'll do a but, dance show and we're not going to dance. Oh my gosh. But you know, the, the, um, there's sort of a, a director tool in, um, in directing plays where it's usually younger directors who are experimenting with directing and how to impact the audience. And, mm -hmm. and it's like a 30 second blackout before the show starts. Oh, right. So it, it's actually, I've seen it many times. And you did it for way longer, <laughs> but you had them, you actually had things happening. Oh, yeah. So to me, not exactly the same, but 
it's doing something similar. It's sort of putting the audience in a state of discombobulation a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Well, then that's gratifying to hear because I know um, for me, entering the world is thrilling, whether it's a sound installation or like an immersive theater experience or even putting on headphones and walking around campus and listening to not pop music, but something else. It, I find a lot of joy in putting myself into my own movie. And so if there's a, a, a translation into that, then perhaps this was it. And if it resonated, then great. And we'll keep it five minutes and nothing for the premiere. Absolutely. Um, and also like how many people in the audience think something is wrong? Think something, oh, yeah. did somebody miss their cue? Right. Like that's also yeah. what I hear is like, who is willing to trust the process? And who is like freaking out? Exactly. <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this is how we see ourselves, you know? Yeah. It's like observing yourself while experiencing a work of art is one of the most exciting things that Isn't an artist it? can yeah. do if they actually know how to tap into it. And, you know, dramaturgs and process people, I think, do it all the time, mm -hmm. right? Because we're doing it to other people. Yeah. And we really want to know what it feels like. Exactly. It's like the theater version of turbulence. <laughs> like the pilot's got it under control, but you're like, no, this is it. We're going down. But <laughs> um, just ride out the turbulence a little yeah. bit more. Yeah. Yeah. And I really enjoyed um, in the workshop that y'all led, um, I think the first thing that was done was laying on the ground in a total blackout, really high ceiling space, probably 40 dancers in the space, seven minutes blackout, only light you can see is coming from the windows that are really high up. And we are told to hum into a yell. Yes. Is that correct? That is correct. And that is an Anna Bracewell, um, uh, original, uh, original. <laughs> and uh, as an observer, I mean, I'm wondering what a listener would think like, mm, well, seven minutes as an observer of that, which I feel guilty observing it because I know it can be very personal is really moving and it's cathartic. And because what I see is, um, eventual buy-in because who's mm. going to make the first audible thing. Yes. And then once that's there, I, I would love to know for, well, yeah, am I doing this right? Is this, am I accelerating it? Am I getting too loud? Am I yeah. being too quiet? Sure. And I feel that when I'm watching it, which is also a cross section of all the peoples and all yeah. the things maybe. And it feels really like tapping into, <clears throat> tapping into one, your courage mm -hmm. to take part in this group activity yeah. that feels weird and you don't know what's going on. And two, like, it's like a, a willingness to explore it at all, like as a, yeah. as an experience. Right. Yes. And so actors have this really special thing where they've been jumping into these kinds of practices a long time. They're fearless. Yes. Right. But it's because they've had so much practice mm -hmm. doing silly exercises all the time yeah. like the kind of things i did in acting class crack me up i mean it's really funny the kind of stuff we did and goofy and silly and i often felt really dumb doing it but i think that it allowed me to approach things that were scary or that i didn't understand in a way that was safe for me 
You know, I just, I, and I think that's what those exercises train us to do is like you said, buy-in, but it's also like the courage to just become a part of it and like the courage to be heard by others and like, let them think something and not care. Right. Like that's the part. And to get to the end there and, and everybody's screaming, like it was fantastic. Oh, I loved it. Oh, that's wonderful. I'll pass that along. You <laughs> should be listening. And I'm because um, I should also confess that my deep down passion has always been to actor. It, I started, I was a dramatic arts major in undergrad. Love in it. Dance. And I do recall very much similar exercises in, in acting classes, which I found cathartic and liberating. And I think in terms of process, what occurs or what I might see um, if somebody encounters this seven minute thing or something beautiful that happens in a class, the inclination is like, I want to put it on stage. But I feel as though (laughs) then there needs to be another filter because many things happen in process for Ararat, I'm sure for developing a new play Mm -hmm. that is simply a doorway into something else. But I find um, there's often a hunger to share that cathartic moment, and it doesn't translate very well. Do I you, so does agree. It, is there a, a resonance? For sure. Yeah. I think I think there's like this. Um, I, sometimes I think that when we're creating, especially when we're newer at it, like let's say we're like really good at this, but we're newer at it that we often don't realize what the audience experience is going to be. Yes. That we're just. And it's not that we're not thinking about them, but I know for myself as a young director, I selected a play um, and I'll just say what the play is just for the sake of it. It was called Tone Clusters by Joyce Carol Oates, who actually mm-hmm. is a novelist, but wrote a few plays. Well, it's a, it's a crazy play and a, a, a beautiful piece of work, but it really devastated the audiences, you know? And I feel Absolutely. like... I mean, they like literally emotional. left looking completely emotionally devastated. Oh, I just okay. devastated. Okay. And I was like, I don't know if that's really what I want to do with my work. Uh-huh. And, and, and I maybe thought it was, but I, I think that we don't always think about the thing that feels good for us as the performer and how that's going to appear or seem like or be experienced by the audience member, right? Right. I think it's often difficult. To, to actually even know that, which is also just um, another reason for me to advertise for new play dramaturgs and dramaturgs in general, right? Yes. Because they're acting as audience members. They're watching, they're experiencing, they're reading, and they're telling you what it feels like. And it's like so intrinsic to any playwriting that we have that, that feedback. And sometimes when we're working in experimental spaces, we're not always thinking that way. And I think we're thinking more, um, honestly, a little bit abusively towards the audience. I'm just going to say it. Oh, I think it's a little 100%. violent to a certain extent. Uh, I, Amber, yeah. Yeah. And that's a decision that we are making. Right. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, like there's all this talk about consent right now with ex- experimental theater. And if, if people are going to be in a, immersed in something, are they going to be prepared for it? And I'm like really for that mm-hmm. because I think if people are going to show up for an experimental piece, I'm going to want them to know that that's what they signed up for. Yes. Right. And I think because I just don't think any work of art shouldn't come with some sort of prepping 
because it should be a journey that you take. Yeah. I think, yeah, we see it in the film industry from trailers and not not even warnings or trigger warnings, but the trailer can give you an inclination. Mm-hmm. I'm not a big fan of like really frightening slasher movies. So, <laughs> um, but I think you're right. And so what I'm hearing, if and because this is fascinating, where the, the dramaturgical aspect is more empathetic to the viewer rather than the artist on stage. You know, it's like... It's like the dramaturg is the bridge. Yeah, okay. They're the bridge. That's satisfying to hear because, mm-hmm. you know, and maybe then the beauty of it is somebody who really is outside of the momentum of the process too. Mm-hmm. Because there is, we talked about preciousness or an inclination to lift up the artist who's making themselves vulnerable on stage. However, mm-hmm. the dramaturg will say, it's not translating, or it's too mm-hmm. much, tone it down. Mm-hmm. I also think there's some stories that artists like should just tell whatever way they want. And those aren't necessarily like the ones that are big productions. Those are just work they needed to release. Yeah. Right. And I think there's a difference. uh, (laughs) I think you should do both, but I think there's a difference. You could do one (laughs) as like an intimate salon. And if the other stuff, I hate to say it, if you wanted to have a little bit more appeal, I mean, I, Mm-hmm. Certainly not a fan of pan, fan of pandering, but nor am I a fan of alienation. Um, to me, it's less about um, any of that and more about intention, mm-hmm. right? And it's like, well, the audience is here. Why are they here? Yes. If this is cathartic for you as an artist, why am I here? Because I am part of this show. Mm-hmm. I am an audience member. Therefore, I'm part of this show. And that's how I approach the audience. Yeah. They're very much a collaborator. I think that's beautiful, and I guess I hope everyone thinks that way because the cynical side of me is like the audience member is like I'm just here because my friends in the show. Oh, <laughs> yeah. sadness! Yeah, I, I know. know. I mean, not to say those people don't exist, but <laughs> to me, those people are an opportunity to surprise and convert yes. potentially. You know, um, and but yeah, I think I think there's room for all of it. Yeah. Um, but I also think younger artists are naturally going to explore relationship with audience because I don't think it's necessarily a given to mm-hmm. fully understand it as an artist. And I think sometimes we treat the, uh, the audience like an antagonist. I've even had artists say that to me specifically. Oh, yeah. I feel like the audience is an antagonist. I think to myself, why would you want those people in your space? Yeah, exactly. Get out of here. I don't Get want an antagonist yeah. here. My antagonist is in my story, not not in my community. That's so true. And I do feel um, whether, because we're inclined to be in front of critics and other people who do the same thing that we exactly. do. Exactly. And, um, and I think maybe delineating that antagonist yeah. viewpoint uh, and just defining where is it coming from because it may not be the general public and it's an antagonist mm-hmm. we build in our minds. And I've seen a lot of work in artists who are right now just throwing their middle finger up at the idea of being seen and performing. Mm-hmm. And then the question is, well, then don't say yes to this. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're going to say yes to being in front of, you will be objectified, you will be criticized, you will blah, 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 blah either secretly or in public um, through a yeah. thing. Yeah. And so... And, but do it anyway and, yeah. uh, and trust the resilient nature because just like I can't tell you who won the Oscar for blah, 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 just this past February. Likewise, 
that moment will kind of dissipate you allow it yes to. yes and i think too like as artists we have to fail as many times yeah. as we succeed and um because i think i used to look at the audience more as an antagonist and i've grown into seeing audiences as collaborators but i think it took like some really cool immersive experiences mm-hmm. for me to realize and to see audiences devastated by the work that i chose and like to see all those things like just because I thought it was cool may not translate. Every great idea I have isn't going to translate. Exactly. Well, that's really beautiful, Amber. And if there's any kind of staying power, then I think the battle has been won. <laughs> you know, for the audience member or the performer, if there's something that sticks, regardless if you love the thing that's stuck or not, then I think that's success. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I think we're just so um, we're so hard on ourselves as artists. It's just it's just really too bad because we have all of the tools we need. It's just a matter of like believing in ourselves, right? And doing it anyway. And doing yeah. it anyway. Yeah, 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 doing it no matter what anybody says. In terms of Ararat, um, you know, you and I have talked a little bit about um, dance dramaturgy around this work Um, in part because I expressed uh, a lot of appreciation for the the show, the preview that I saw and saw a lot of theater in it. Um, And uh, so let's talk a little bit about that first meeting and some of the questions you had for me in regards to dance dramaturgy. Yeah. Well, because I didn't know what it would look like essentially because for the most part, many dances or evening works are built from maybe a personal experience Rarely are they translations of, I'll say in, in the contemporary world, translations of something that already exists. Um, so when it's original, I didn't know what that would look or feel like. When it has maybe a tentacle in history, that clearly felt like um, a, a jumping off point for a dramaturg. But in conversation with you, I realized, oh, the questions that I can ask down to like, does this go on for too long? Or is what is this and is this too ambiguous is this too literal um and that translation from what makes so much clear sense in my mind or even in digesting a completed idea it makes sense to me but doesn't make sense to somebody else is there an invitation to dig in deeper to an audience member or is is it um holding a hand up and saying, accept it as is. Mm. So these are the questions that I have. And I'm guessing that that, do you want to respond to that? Yeah, okay. sure. I guess it's, uh, would the dramaturg's uh, role then be to agitate in the best way, to understand <laughs> how to wake an audience member up to and to relay, it's okay, whatever you're thinking, feeling, or not thinking, not feeling. Mm-hmm. Is there some alignment that way because that feels like it would be the best security blanket mm-hmm. in many ways mm-hmm. um, because I think we could grandstand like well this is what I want and therefore it doesn't resolve it if they don't get it who on them <laughs> but that's not that's not me right and it doesn't sound like that's not your goal either. right and then likewise the questions that surrounded this Amber that I've asked you were that there's there's definitely historic context and facts and figures. 
I'm not necessarily interested in reciting those. In 1912, Ottoman official, that's not the work that I'm, I'm interested in making. Pick up a history book. So where, where do these tidbits make their way in? Mm-hmm. in in a way that feels potent or mm-hmm. something examinable after the thing, mm-hmm. something you might want to research in yourself or historically. Mm-hmm. These are the valuable components that I just don't know how to do. And I'm mm-hmm. really thrilled to embrace. I don't do write a script. I don't do I write a script for this dance from beginning right? to end. Right. Yeah. 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 I'm my head's running. Um, I, I can I see that. Was, yeah. No, <laughs> okay. no. Well, I mean, the, the, the historical context becomes a narrative of its own. So you really have to be like, be very intentional about where it is because people are just going to immediately connect those dots. Exactly. So you have to figure out what is the audience going to understand with this one is here and this one is here and this one is here and this pops in here. What, what story are you then telling if you change around when they happen? Or where they happen, right? You just cracked open the answer to this. <laughs> you really did. Because maybe that is an anchor yeah. in one way. Yeah. I with, mean, potentially maybe it's an anchor. History, and it doesn't have to be lesson. linear either, like yeah. at all. It, it, you know, and so you can, if, if there's a narrative there that's that. And um, I would also say Ararat also includes a live DJ. Yes. Right. Um, there is, um, a live mic being used at at several different points. Um, the DJ and the music communicate with the dancers, like a literal conversation, which is really fun. Um, there is humor in that communication, right? Uh, which I really, really enjoyed. Um, and then there's sort of sections that feel sort of theatrical where, questions are being asked on a microphone. Um, but there's sort of a, a dissonance created by potentially repeating the question three times exactly. or changing the question slightly or making it sound robotic or changing the, the way that it's spoken. So really exploring performance art in some of that. And like, what does it look like to communicate these different, these different forms and put them together? Exactly. So then um, the role of this person is to stitch it together to remove the fragments and um along with all the listeners i'm figuring this out right now I really <laughs> do because the their the absence of the through line um if it's conscious i suppose can have value mm-hmm. but in this case there is the need for it which mm-hmm. i do believe the dramaturg can bring Mm-hmm. because these, as we've processed many ideas in the studio, we would just, just start an idea. And when we got to a moment where a definitive end were uh, making it, was making itself known or an idea was going to go via right or left, mm-hmm. we stopped it ah. conscientiously, which is all well and good. However, the why, I suppose, mm-hmm. is the thing that would be fortified by mm-hmm this investigation and sure yeah and you've done so much of the intuitive work already which is really cool which means the personally that's the way to go uh-huh. because the historical narrative could really take over if you started with it yeah oh, so bringing it in after right. actually just allows so much richness and texture to come from 
the emotional foundation of the work. That's gratifying to hear because I do notice that um, if a choreographer is going to tackle something like this, the the easier thing would be to put on uh, audio that references a timeline and move around to it. Mm-hmm. So you're merging news and dance. I'm not interested in that. Right. I'm interested in the stuff, the interpretation of the two. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I get yes. that in the okay. work. I really yeah. do. Um, and I think traditional dance dramaturgy would be a little more focused on that particular choreo means this to me versus if you changed it, it means that to me in a story. Whereas we're talking a little more about um, the combination of performative art, live performative art and dance, right? Um, And also, yeah, in, in this case, we're talking more about that it would be more about how the choreography is interacting with all the different mediums yeah. and what kind of story that's telling. Well, thank you for that. Because I, it's something, um, and perhaps in playwriting, I'm going to throw it back. Sometimes not all the words have to relate to the ultimate narrative, right? right? Oh, God, so right. all the moves don't have to relate to the thing. And in fact, that's almost asking an audience to be first in some weird hieroglyphic form. <laughs> They will never know that. And so what a disservice to do. Like, well, you rolling to the ground clearly meant blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. That's just kind of me. (laughs) So it's the frame around it that feels incredibly valuable. And the fact that we get to jump back into another hearty uh, process and do it again in October um, to revisit the ideas and... um, cut away the things that no longer resonate. It's not like mm-hmm. throwing them away. They just don't have any purpose. It's almost like yeah. introducing new members of the family and divorcing, <laughs> divorcing other ones, exactly. which is such a rare occur- occasion um, in our field. And mm-hmm. the delivery of new material, whether it's a new play or a new work, to get to do it again and also see it through many iterations, not through consecutive runs, but like runs that have months between them to pull mm-hmm. something out of the attic and do it again. Really so invigorating. Yeah, I love this. And I love that you have the opportunity to get to bring these pieces back and work them again and work yeah. them again. And, um, you know, it's not something we get to do a lot in the theater. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, we have our rolling world premieres and we have our previews. Yes. <laughs> but, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, that's not the same thing. Um, even if we're doing workshops, it, like this was a fully produced preview. It, it did get way more fancy than I ever thought it would. <laughs> I mean, it was, like, you know. Georgie loves fancy, but it, we, yeah. <laughs> so, it, yeah. It I mean, it was a really stuff. high tech workshop production, in my opinion, like if you were going to call it what we would do in theater, it would be a workshop production because I think for you, it felt not fully completed and not fully produced, which would be more of a workshop production, but you still got lights and sound and you really have a form and you really know what it looks like. And all the things that were there. Yeah. 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 What I loved is that the questions that I had were also among the audience, like, Oh wow, you didn't work with the walls. You didn't do this. You didn't with the paper and like yeah i know because these elements just kind of ah. manifested and how fantastic that we're on a similar trajectory like there's an yes. opportunity the audience is witnessing an opportunity as am i and i find that incredibly 
quickly. But I think yeah. I maybe cut off the thought. No, no, no. That's absolutely true. Um, I think I think it's if the audience is having similar questions and you're still in process. That is, I've heard that a million times. Like that's sometimes why extensive feedback can be a little exhausting because you're yes. like, well, I already know a lot of that. I don't need to hear 20 more minutes of it, but let me hear 10 minutes of what I haven't heard or what I don't already know. Absolutely. Right. Yes. Yeah. 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 Um, which is why it's so good to remind people like the feedback is for the artists rather than for them to just like share whatever they want to share. Right. <laughs> yeah, like, it's yeah, like, we yeah. appreciate you being here, but like this session is for efficiency and for the artists getting what they need from it, you know? Um, do you find that, do you do feedback sessions with your audiences very I'm, often? I'm afraid to, oh. I'm not afraid of the feedback by any means, but right. what I'm nervous about is that I, I think I know how people feel about that process. Mm. Anyway, they don't love it. <laughs> well, maybe the good thing is, is that it was populated by people who, um, maybe weren't necessarily seasoned dance goers. For me, that's the ecstatic part of it. Right. It really is. If somebody witnessed it as you did and yeah. chose to stick around and wanted to hear how other people, other people processed it, that is the sweet spot. And that's where mm -hmm. I love to live. So I don't mind it. I don't, I, yeah. I'm not really necessarily thrilled of grandstanding and saying, well, this is exactly what I was thinking. <laughs> yes, of I found a lot of value in pre-show conversations, not necessarily here's what you're about to see mm. rather introducing questions that we were thinking about and hearing the audience's answers to that. Mm -hmm. If for nothing else to prime the brain, yeah. Um, yeah. to situate the brain in that world, much like this 30 second blackout that you were talking about. Yeah. Uh, to wipe a slate clean or go in with this sort of mm -hmm. stirring and then move from there. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It makes sense. So, what do you find are some of the more challenging aspects of your work? Where are there where are there pain points for you achieving your goals? Okay, not as in the work as it translates to an audience, but for me as the person making it. And, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, it could also be it could yeah. also be challenging uh -huh. just the making of the work too. Well, a pain point is um, recognizing that many people do the same thing that I do. And that there are always going to be opinions that are contrary to the version that I put out. Mm -hmm. um, that is definitely a thing. And I know it exists. And um, I've learned to become comfortable with it. That's a lie. It's always <laughs> prickly. It doesn't You matter. continue your journey. You still do the journey. Anyway. Yes. Yes. Um, and I don't know that I could ever be convinced otherwise that that underworld doesn't exist because mm. I mean, for better or worse. I would even call myself a participant in that sort of opinion jostling, mm. um, which is fine. Um, so that's a pain point. There's also a pain point in recognizing that maybe that doesn't exist uh, unanimously. Mm. And that someone truly did invest in this moment and, and trusting that. Um, mm -hmm. So, uh, and I would say another one that I think it's more personal, and I'll reference Neil Brennan, who's a stand-up comedian in a moment, but it's the recognition that um, we're all encountering this fear simultaneously. The dancer is like, is this what George was looking for? Or did I do this in a way that 
doesn't offend other dancers in the room, and especially mm-hmm. in the work that I know that um, you're doing with your nonprofit as well as mine, there's a lot of listening. Mm-hmm. And I celebrate that and lift that up. And yeah. so at one point, I don't know that all the voices at the, at all the moments will have equal volume. Mm-hmm. And so it's adjusting one up or down that feels uncomfortable sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, that's hard to navigate. I could go on and on about people. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, um, yeah, I mean, something that really, I think, resonates and what I hear a lot from artists is just the, the competitive nature of the work and yeah. how hard we are on ourselves and how hard we are on each other. Yeah. And um, that a lot of that for me really feels like capitalism getting into our brains and yes. convincing us that there is a best or a one of. Yeah. And I really, I just don't, absolutely do not believe in it. I mean, you were joking. You didn't know anything about the Oscars. Me either. I don't believe in awards. Mm -hmm. I don't believe in first and seconds and third places. Like it just, when you're comparing apples and oranges, what is the purpose? I don't get it. And Um, and who, and who died made you an expert? You know, I mean, people ask me sometimes, do you enjoy teaching? I say, honestly, not all the time. I feel like when I teach, what I'm saying is that I'm an expert and I'm not, not an expert. Because I'm always going to be learning. I am never going to know everything. Like, I could never lead a room believing that I knew everything. I feel that that would be a really stupid room and nobody would want to be in it because nobody else would have anything worth saying, right? But me. So I hear you on that. I think, and that's sort of our own worst enemy. That's us us going to our social media, reminding ourselves that there's millions of people in the world, all of whom are creating things at one time. It's like, Take a break, go on a hike. Like, don't worry about what everyone else is doing. Like, who are you? Who am I as an artist? And what do I want to contribute to the world that will never go away? Right? Like this podcast, every episode I launch, it's out there. It is there. Yeah. People. uh, And that's how everything is. When we put it online, it is out there. When we launch something, when we make something. When it's theater, it's there and it's gone. When it's dance, it's there and it's gone. But but you're still making it and you still have that chance to do that. And to me, that is everything. It is. You know, you said so. It's very comforting having this conversation. Really. <laughs> I was thinking about my students at Emory right now who are presenting their own work in a concert and putting myself in that headspace, each of the six choreographers as their work is being performed. I know for them, because I, it, it lands with me, Everything is it. It, it. That is the only thing that is occurring, which for them is absolutely true. Take a step 10 feet away from the studio theater and you hardly know that it's occurring. But it's phenomenal how mm-hmm. I can let myself get pulled into this pool downward and also um, recognizing my own inclinations. And it's okay to transfer those inclinations to others. And I learned this from my ex-wife, Kathleen Wessel, who helped me find found this company when I was convinced that there was only one thing, as you had said, there's only one way to make dance. There's only one kind of thing that's appreciable. Right. And she's like, you love steak, right? Yeah, I love steak. You love pizza, right? Yeah. Get it? Oh, yeah, you're right. Um, <laughs> and if I can do that, so can an audience, so can a dancer, so can a choreographer. So I will happily watch Mm-hmm. any like really cool minute and a half hip hop thing and think that is what I want to do for the rest of my life or <laughs> jump into then she fell in New York and be a, 
embraced by this wild, wacky Alice in Wonderland thing and think this is the be and end all. Mm-hmm. But it's that universe in that one second yeah. that can feel powerful and then just move on. Oh my gosh, yes. And artists, we fall into this so quickly. I mean, we, we're so engaged in our work, we forget to market it. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, it's yeah. just like, well, nobody's there. Nobody's coming to see it. Yeah. Then what are you doing? What are you Absolutely. doing with your life? And yeah. it's like, well, I'm doing my art. Well, you need an audience you for do. that, right? Yeah. And, um, and I have to often remind artists, I'm like, you also have to make sure people come to see the show. Yeah. Because there too. is no yeah. show without an audience. That's true. You know? It's true. As much um, as we want to tell ourselves, it can live without them. And the, the ability for us to grow and change and to create intuitively and to believe in our work is something that we get to have that the audience gets to see as a reflection and then they get to take it with them. You know, I mean, art is so much deeper than the content of what we, what we see on stage. You know, it's like, it's an experience, y'all. It's an experience. And I think in many ways, we don't realize the way it changes us until much later. No, and it, it, I think the alignment is with more um, at our fingertips kind of art, whether it's a film. You might hear I have a friend who can name every scene from every movie he's ever watched. I don't know, understand how he can pull this back. But obviously the thing landed. It had, um, but I don't know if people necessarily think, oh, that Marvel movie was art. But if it steered you down a road that you continue to reference, and if you continue to massage that and break it apart, you're like, oh, ultimately this is about, and it's connecting me to sort of thing. Yeah. No, I love that. And um, I think that moves me into my next question, which is what do dancers and choreographers need from the field, from the dance field, from the creative field? I got such sage advice from this phenomenal website app kind of thing that is, it's, it's called TikTok. <laughs> <laughs> and I love it. <laughs> this one 20 something thing person that hops on there. Hey, if you start to feel bad about yourself or you get into a depressive state, here's the solution. Stop thinking about yourself. <laughs> oh my God, it works. And inside of visiting somebody else's work mm. that I happen to find really good, mm-hmm. I can become really upset. I'm like, I didn't think of that. Everyone's going to love this more than my, and like that mm. shitty committee that's on my shoulder is going to preach. And I'm like, well, what if I stop thinking about myself and just enjoy this thing? Yeah. Maybe yeah. that's, I don't know. I am certainly not positing that as a universal thing that everyone does that, mm-hmm. but it's hard to step away from that competitive thing. Like, mm-hmm. Oh, that that's going to go on tour and be funded, which circles back to this Neil Brennan show that I watched. He's yeah. a stand-up comedian. And maybe the last 10 minutes were an exposition on a journey through depression, but more than that, a journey through even in the stand-up comedy world, looking at, oh, so-and-so's got this gig. How did they get this theater? Why, why are they there? I'm like, you do that too? Major earner in stand-up comedy and me, little dance company owner, we're both doing the same thing. Amazing. Mm-hmm. Okay, we stop thinking about ourselves. And Sean Wen Hilton, who's an independent artist in town, who acted as our uh, rehearsal director for Fence, um, 
whenever there's an agitation, whether it's interpersonal, me with the work, that whatever, uh, the reconciliation for all of it was it's about the work. It is really about this thing that none of us can hold. So if we are in service to that, great. Mm-hmm. And um, that feels like the answer. Mm-hmm. For me, yeah. I'm not suggesting that. For me in service to the work. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I think with, with playwriting, we always say in service to the playwright as well, uh-huh. but you're talking about ensemble device creation. Yes. Yeah, that's right. Very yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah yes. Because yeah. the, the playwright I'm assuming has dramatically, it might feel like, Oh, it's so easy. It's just you and a computer, <laughs> but it's me and 10 dancers and a studio and a schedule. But there, the demands are incredibly, because I can be fed by these 10 people in the room. who will have the thing. Mm-hmm. And if a playwright, I'm assuming, thinks it's a singular endeavor, it could be torturous. Exactly. Exactly. And your dancers, too. I mean, working in workshop with them, just very courageous, very willing to engage. Like, um, you know, dancers usually are pretty engaged, but I would say these dancers even more so. Very courageous, like showing everyone maybe who was new to the workshop how to do it. You know, illustrating, yeah, illustrating the, the commitment to the prompts. I mean, it was cool to see, you know, um, there were people in leadership, but like it really felt like everyone was a part of the process and, and every voice counted. So maybe it's a that. different kind of properness because historically art, whether it's reciting Shakespeare perfectly or playing Beethoven perfectly or ballet, there's a proper way to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know that we embrace mm-hmm. a proper way to do the move, but we have a proper way of interacting with people. And yes. that feels like mm-hmm. that a different kind of proper. Yeah. It's a different kind of system. Yeah, it is. And one yeah. that I feel like I want to bathe in that all the time. Right. <laughs> so A place where everybody feels agency and yeah. feels safe and feels like their voice is heard and like feels like a contributing mm-hmm. artist. What a it's special a, space. Yeah. Yeah. And aligning with individual truths because to create a, a new co- collective truth of that work. Mm, yeah. So true. I think mm. that is so key. Like becoming a collective does not mean losing your individual no. truth. Yeah. So key. Love that. And I think that's also a thing. How do we kind of inside our work where dance is concerned, unlike theater, I'm guessing where there are char- definable characters who have uh, ilks or like idiosyncrasies that are really identifiable and clear and in dance maybe not so much so the dancer herself himself themself is going to have to say i'm going to align with this kind of weird narrative though the nuances of me will come out through movement but not through uh understandable language maybe and Mm -hmm. so that's the thing that i grapple with as well like Mm -hmm. how to Mm -hmm let the person truly be the person on stage and yet still create theater in one way or another. Mm -hmm. Not but, but yes, and yeah. Right. Exactly. Well, I think too, um, we've talked in this podcast about trusting artists and that's kind of what I hear you talking about is really trusting the artists. Exactly. That's great. We don't, we don't think enough about actors in that way. Um, We often think they are vessels rather than humans. We need to be thinking more about their welfare. Huh. Um, so I really like the way you talk about the dancers and your care for them. Um, I do what I do without them. <laughs> <laughs> I know, right? Uh, they're the courage inside the group. 
Yeah. Yeah. So do you have any dance um, or creative references or inspirations you'd like to share with listeners? Uh, yeah. Um, there, there's a lot of it dates back. I'm thinking about Pina Bausch and what a leader uh, her work, what leader she was in her time and how much that is, it has a lot of verve still. Mm. There's really nothing dated about that material or the concept. And that directs me back to the Germans who are kind of, who are just relentless in terms of like charging and fueling this world so robustly and, Anna Bracewell Crowder introduced me to Johannes Wieland, who has phenomenal, highly theatrical work in Germany now. Amsterdam and then MFA um, from Tisch and then went back to Germany and creating really exciting physical theater that's as whack as it is moving, <laughs> as physical as it is subtle. And inside that, um, there's this series of workshops that occur in Berlin called B12. And um, I've never been. So I'm <laughs> only speaking uh, through hearsay, which is inadmissible in court, um, <laughs> uh, according to Judge Judy. But um, it is a lot of experimental, <clears throat> excuse me, stuff that occurs in workshops, cracking mm. open the austereness of pride and the self to get to mm. the fiery parts of emotion, the fiery parts of physicality. So from people that I've heard who've gone there, they really love it. They propose it as a great place for older artists, though it could be populated with younger ones wanting mm -hmm. to show fancy stuff. But from what I understand, this is really a system of explorations that really rely on a dancer mm -hmm. or a participant's ability to go deeper inside themselves. And not show off, but show in, I guess. Oh, cool. I like um, that. Show in. And you said that's B12 in B12 Berlin. B12 in Berlin. As well, I have a friend, Leah Cox, who is developing this uh, thing called the Failure Institute, I think. But she can't call it Failure Institute. I think the word institute is used somewhere else. But it's a meeting place for creatives to gather, put their expertise aside, and do stuff and fail. <laughs> or at least not produce. Love it. Inside of that. So that's coming. Soon. I love it. I like to say I love to see artists fail as much as I like yeah, to see them succeed. Absolutely. There is there's no absolutely nothing wrong with failure. It is a part of the journey. It is. Enjoy your crash and burn. Exactly. Yeah. With the gusto in which they burn. Yeah. Because for sure. wow, get you learn so much from those opportunities. And somebody might love it in the right way. Totally. Uh, yeah. Totally. Absolutely. I just, yeah. Thank you for that. Um, so what is your best advice for artists, your best advice for creatives? So I think perhaps I alluded to this a moment ago and that's get in bed with the enemy. <laughs> <laughs> really make love with the thing that you think you don't love. And mm. um, because I think it can fulfill personally, like I'm only going to do this, this, and only pursue this, this, and this, and this. Right. And yet there's so much valuable information in checking out the thing that's the antimatter mm. and understanding the antimatter can really, um, it's always going to be there. Right? Yeah. Um, there's an inclination to shroud the self um, with all the comforting things and all the people who are going to boost you up and say, yeah, that was the best thing ever. Um, but supposing you let yourself uh, rub shoulders with, thing that's prickly yeah um yeah 
Uh, That's great advice. You think so? I think it's so. It's a hard one to swallow. It's and it always, one. the value of it happens afterwards, never in the moment. Never yeah. In the moment. People don't but, usually like to hear it, yeah. but it generally, I think, is the way the work gets better yeah, and stronger so. and, and more resonant for others. Yeah, because then you can conscientiously dig your heels in or invite something else. Uh, mm-hmm. Steve Everett, who is a musician at Emory, uh, since move said the value is the silence in music, the negative space in the sculpture, mm. and stillness and dance often speak more than the actual thing. Mm. So I wonder if that could be true with people and the person that or the thing that's opposite of what we're looking for. Drop the mic on that. Oh, really? For sure. Cool. Yes. <laughs> so where can listeners connect with you and keep up with your well, work? We have this multicultural festival that happens in June. Is it okay? Like yeah. daily stuff? Well, I Go know this is going to live forever. Absolutely. Um, it's the week after Memorial Day. So it's an assembly of nine uh, cultural companies from Atlanta under one roof for community conversations and a panel discussion about these Forms that come from different continents that are alive and well in our city. Mm-hmm. Uh, cool. Ararat has its full premiere in October. We just learned today. So uh, October 26th through 29th that week, as well as a root theory workshop, our Italy program. So statedance.com. Is, uh, and truthfully, it really is. It's about community and culture and an assembly of that. Mm-hmm. What we do doesn't matter unless all these different histories unite. And mm. agree together. So mm-hmm. that's what's coming up. Love that. Love that. That's amazing. Well, George, thank you so thank much you, for all Amber. you do. You're a gift. <laughs> you really are. And there's more to come between the two of us. <laughs> yes. Today, so. Cannot wait to work with you more. Yeah, likewise. Well, I'm your host, Amber Bradshaw, and I will chat with you next time. Thank you so much for joining us, George. Thank you, Amber. A thrill, a joy. Thank you. Thank you, listeners, for tuning in to Table Work, How New Plays Get Made with Amber Bradshaw. This podcast was brought to you by Working Title Playwrights. If you like what you've heard today, support this podcast and all our initiatives by leaving us a review, following us, and or consider making a tax-deductible donation to Working Title Playwrights at www.workingtitleplaywrights.com. Table Work.